0: Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Welcome to the good stuff. I'm Jacob Schick, and I'm joined by my co-host and wife, Ashley Schick.
3: Jake is a third generation combat Marine, and I'm a Gold Star granddaughter. We work together to serve military, veterans, first responders, frontline healthcare workers, and their families with mental and emotional wellness through traditional and non traditional therapy at One Tribe Foundation.
2: We believe everyone has a story to tell, not only about the peaks, but also the valleys they've been through to get them to where they are today.
3: Each week, we invite a guest to tell us their story, to share with us the lessons they've learned that shaped who they are, and what they're doing to pay it forward and give back.
2: Our mission with this show is to dig deep into our guest's journey so that we can celebrate the hope and inspiration their story has to offer.
3: And we're thrilled you're joining us.
2: Again, welcome to The Good Stuff. We have the gift of getting to hang out with one of the nicest people in the world who also happens to be really good at beating people up. Today's guest is Randy Couture, who I've been friends with for years after getting to know him through various fundraising events and motorcycle rides.
3: And you may know him from being a Hall of Fame six-time world champion UFC fighter, or as an actor in countless projects, including The Expendables. And he's an Army veteran. He's here to tell us the story of being raised by a single mother, how he discovered his love of wrestling, and his path to becoming a champion.
2: He was nice enough to record this episode over Zoom, even though his AirPods kept... (laughs) Not only popping out, but shooting out of his cauliflower
3: ears. (laughs) Here's Randy Couture.
4: Just got back. You got it. (laughs) The benefits of cauliflower ear. (laughs) I didn't notice ever. Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's funny because it's the first thing that some people notice, like they can't stop staring at (laughs) it. Yeah. And other people have known me for years. Like, Man, I never even noticed those. How bad <laughs> it is. Uh, I, I just got back from Bulgaria. And, of course, you had to do the pickup scenes with 50 Cent. And a big part of the scene was uh, about my ear, as usual, with the, <laughs> the expendable. So all my college buddies lose their mind when that stuff comes on. It's a blast.
2: So one of the first pictures I showed, Ash, you sent me a picture where you stabbed some cauliflower and then held it up to your ear. <laughs> I said, this to give you an idea of who Randy is. He's the real deal. There's no nothing manufactured about this guy. You've been there for me and for guys that I know that serve that have been either battling cancer or just been dealt cards that they didn't ask to be dealt. And yeah. you've just always been a stand up dude. And I remember the first time we met. Years ago at one of your events, it was one of your rides, it was Poker Run in Vegas for Extreme GI Couture Foundation. And I just appreciate the human you are, man. I've seen you around a lot of people before you take the stage and rock the microphone. You're so gracious, man. And you don't big time people. I think that's why people just gravitate to you because not only are you this badass fighter, but you love hard, man. And it's palpable. And I think that's one of the reasons is people feel it. And I know I have. And before we kick this off, I just want to say thank you for that.
4: You bet, man. Thank you. I appreciate that very much, Jake. You know, we uh, spin uh, another one out. (laughs) Come on. This is awesome. This is this is the challenge. Trying to get things to stay in
2: these damn ears. Here's the deal. Like if that's the biggest struggle you have this week, (laughs) that's a win. Yeah. Oh, no doubt about that.
3: Well, we are so thrilled and so honored today to have Our next guest here on The Good Stuff, Randy Couture, The Natural, a six-time UFC champion, actor, gym owner, father, also runs the Extreme Couture GI Foundation, which serves combat veterans in need, and motorcycle enthusiast and great friend. Thank you, Randy, so much for being on The Good Stuff.
4: Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure.
3: Jake has told a lot of stories about the two of you and the time that you've spent together. We won't tell those on The Good Stuff, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good
2: thing is, is like, they're really, other than just being horrible, up singing karaoke.
3: I'm just impressed that you actually got him to sing karaoke. The liquid
2: courage was involved. Liquid That was in yeah. my drinking oh, days. Oh, yeah. No so doubt about that. There was some liquid courage.
3: Jake is now five years sober.
2: Yeah. Oh, that is amazing. Good for yeah. you, brother. That's Thanks, great. Thanks, bro been actively trying to get the crutches out. And I have 100% accountability. And with my everyday life and trying to be a a legitimate walking, eating, breathing example for our boys and just let them see what accountability looks like and that every decision has a consequence, you got to own it.
3: All that to say, we do go deep here on the good stuff. The whole point is to be vulnerable and talk about the hard times in life so that we can celebrate the great times in life. Is there a time or a story that you can remember in, in your path where you went through something that really helped shape the man that you are today?
4: Gosh, I've, I've had a few of those instances in my life for sure. Growing up in a single parent household up in Seattle, my mom kind of toeing the line, raising three of us by herself with literally no support or little of no support. Definitely set the stage, I think. And you can use those circumstances as an excuse to make a lot of piss poor decisions, but I think being the person I was, I used them to motivate me to head in the right direction, to make some choices that put me in the right places and, and got me the right people that I needed to get through those circumstances. And those coaches were very important. I mean, I walked on a wrestling mat, hoping to get a deadbeat dad's attention and didn't work He never saw me wrestle in a single match in my entire career. But uh, I found the place that I seemed to fit or seemed to flourish. Some of my best friends were guys I was sweating and bleeding with on those mats. And those coaches were very important people. When I needed a kick in the ass, they were the guys to step up and do that. When I needed someone to throw an arm around me and give me a Dutch rub and say, hey, it's going to be all right, man. You're going to be fine. They were the guys to do that, too. And Junior high school coach John Kasper, still good friends with him to this day. He's an amazing man. I don't think he realized the impact he had on so many of us. Coach McAvoy in high school, old football coach, never wrestled a day in his life, but he was a great wrestling coach. He was a disciplinarian and kept us on task. And you know, I won my first championship with him as a state champion in 1981, my senior year in high school. <laughs> so and the they rolled I from was there born? into the. Uh, <laughs> see, now you're sounding like my girlfriend. <laughs> Nobody
3: likes so a that, bragger, Randy. <laughs> that math
4: is easy for her. She slaps me with that all the time. Oh, <laughs> when I was six? Yeah. <laughs>
3: What were you like as a teenager?
4: I was pretty shy. Around my friends, I would open up, but it, certainly around adults, I was pretty shy. Kept to myself so- soft-spoken, some might say, until you turn me loose on a wrestling mat or on a football field. And then that's where all that came out was there. I was never in fights. Well, I think I was in two fights all through school. Never in any any trouble, honestly. Probably lucky like, yeah, I just didn't get caught. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the truth of that situation. <laughs>
3: How did you wind up on a mat in the first place? If you were shy and you weren't a fighter, how did that even come about?
4: My best friend at that time, his name was Bobby Stevenson. He had two older brothers, David and John, and they were both on the wrestling team in the junior high school. We were grade schoolers. We we're in sixth grade. Bobby's like, hey, we're going to go watch my brothers wrestle you want to go. And I'm like, hell yeah. And you know, We get in the car, go with his parents, go to watch John and David wrestle in this tournament. It was the district meet. And they happened to have a novice division that they'd implemented for kids, and John and David thought it was funny to throw me and Bobby into the novice <laughs> division tournament. Never wrestled a day in my life. I pin a kid with a headlock. I got my first bloody nose, and I'm like, "This was amazing! <laughs> like I just had a blast." So I think in my young mind, I thought, "Wow, well, I have heard all my whole life what a great wrestler Ed was, and maybe he'll come around. Maybe he'll he'll want to come see me wrestle." So. That next year, I rolled into seventh grade at Allwood Junior High School, and Coach Case Beer was the same PE teacher and coach that had been running that tournament. He remembered me, he said, hey, wrestling starts next week. I'll see you there. And I was like, all right. I've been wrestling ever since.
3: What was your first big win that you can remember?
4: I won the state championship in 1981, my senior year in high school. I'd never been to the state tournament before that. I qualified as an alternate the year before wrestling, two weight classes above my weight. I couldn't make my varsity team, you know, I was 500 at best that season. And I, I going into my senior year, I sat down with my mom said, mom, I, I want to be a state champion this year in wrestling. And I said, I'm working 20, 30 hours a week to be able to pay my car insurance and put gas in my car so I can drive to school. And, you know, I, I don't think I can do that and achieve this goal. And my mom said, look, I believe in you. You can take the next four or five months off from your job. I'll pay your car insurance. I'll pay for your gas money. And so I went about writing that plan down. I wouldn't go from where I'm sitting right now, Las Vegas to Dallas, Texas, wherever you all are at, without a map. (laughs) You better sit down and draw a map, figure out all those steps. Rolls off your tongue very easily to say, I want to be a state champion. But how Mm -hmm. am I actually going to get there? Because from where I'm sitting then, to where I want to be down the road in five months is a long ways away.
3: How did you know to do that?
4: I didn't literally. I was doing this stuff on a whim. Had no idea that I was visualizing. Coach Casper had all these tag board signs in a stage where we wrestled, where we practiced. He had all the takedowns, all the reversals, all the escapes. And and I used to memorize those and sit at home at night while I was going to bed and visualize each one of those ones I, I knew. And then Sooner or later, I knew all of them on the list. No idea how to visualize or what I was doing. I literally fell into this. Same thing. No one had ever talked to me about setting goals or how to map that out or I had a a fair idea what I needed to do. And I started writing down a plan and this is how I think I need to be to get to that. And this was what led to the conversation with my mom, which allowed me to stop working at the grocery store as a box boy and Start doing the extra lifting, start doing the extra running, doing the extra drilling and practice time and being diligent and all those things at practice. All that stuff was written in a journal and I had no idea why or what motivated me to do it. Come to find out I was doing exactly the right thing and I had no idea.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
3: I had a great mother as well who always was just hammering at us, you know, set goals, reach for this, no self-doubt, keep going, you get in your own way. But a few short years later, you're a father.
4: Uh, yeah, at 19, I had a family on the way. Dated the same girl my whole senior year in high school. And she stayed in, in Seattle at the University of Washington. I went across the state, to Washington State, which was eight hours away at and- so I, I said, like, man, I can't imagine going to college my freshman year and, and dating somebody that's living clear across the state. So we, we kind of parted ways after our senior year. And I came home, lost in the challenge match to make the varsity team. Thanksgiving is the first big tournament in the wrestling season usually every year. And so I was like, well, I didn't make a team, so I'm not going on the trip. Might as well take the bus across the state and go home for Thanksgiving and see my family. And ended up going out on a date with Sharon, my girlfriend, that whole senior year. Go back to Washington State, and I get a phone call, hey, I'm pregnant, you know, did not know what to do. She was like, look, I'm having this baby, whether you're in or not. It doesn't matter, I'm having this baby. So the ball was definitely in my court. I went on autopilot. I was like, I am not gonna be like my dad was. I'm gonna be part of this kid's life. And that was a huge decision. I quit school right there, went to an Army recruiter, took the ASVAB qualified and join the service to support a new family on the way. I went on delayed entry, I wasn't gonna get in to basic training till that next October. So October of 1982, I left for basic training. My son had just been born that August before I left. Ryan, that's my oldest. Scared out of my mind as a 19 year old to be a parent and all this responsibility all of a sudden that, that came with the decision to go on that date when I was home for Thanksgiving. Sharon is an amazing person. She's a great mother and a, an amazing person. We have two great kids. Amy was born when we were stationed in Germany a couple years later. Been six years wearing that uniform. And then the next big decision, I have two kids now. I have the opportunity to keep wrestling and doing what I'm doing in the service, pursuing that Olympic dream of you know making that Olympic team. Or am I going to get out and take this scholarship? I basically ended up being an alternate on the 88 Olympic team as a soldier. So all these college coaches are like, where the hell did this kid come from? <laughs> and because I I basically joined that service right away, my my clock stopped as far as matriculation oh, in college, and yeah. so I had I had four years eligibility. And so all this all the college coaches started calling, and now I'm fielding all these calls from all these great colleges wanting me to come wrestle for them. And it was a big decision for me: was I going to keep doing what I was doing, support my family as a soldier wearing that uniform, or was I going to get out and try and get that college degree? And My Army coach, Floyd Winter, again, those coaches were very important guys for me. He encouraged me to get out, said, no, I think you need to get out. You're crazy if you don't take that scholarship at Oklahoma State. It's one of the best wrestling schools in the country and pushed me. He sure would have loved to keep me on the team and keep me in the service, keep me winning championships for him, but he did what was best for me and pushed me to get out and take the scholarship. That was a huge decision for me and a very scary decision with two kids and a wife and a family to support. to go try and see if after six years of being in the uniform, if I had what it took to to be a college student again. I mean, it was uh, crazy, but it worked out.
3: Does Ryan ever say to you like that, if it weren't for me, you know, your whole life could have been, <laughs> does he ever remind you or hold uh, that over <laughs> you? Yeah.
4: No, he's never, you know, we've never, uh, never had that conversation. I'm, obviously I think he could do the math and figure out how things went down. <so>.
3: How would you describe your your time in the Army, looking back now?
4: Formative. Uh, I was 19, between my junior and senior year, I went to Europe for three weeks. First time really out of the country other than going to Canada or Mexico and seeing other cultures. And I was in a humanities class, and that summer, our humanities teacher and social studies teachers all got together, and they took 60 of us overseas for three weeks. I work all year saving money, first catching chickens, i was yeah the <laughs> like nastiest nastiest jo- oh yes the nastiest job i've ever had in my life <laughs> literally wading through barns full of thousands and thousands of chickens and chicken shit but it was six dollars an hour in, in the late 70s early 80s up was a lot of damn money so
3: <laughs> what would you do with the chickens once you caught them
4: they were going to go to the slaughterhouse and be slaughtered for food. Somebody has to catch him and Absolutely. put him in those trucks and take them to the slaughterhouse. So wow, that was us. <laughs> you can't tell me uh, that didn't
2: help with your footwork.
4: <laughs> we got creative for sure. We got into some trouble. Our boss, Mr. Potter was not too keen on us playing football with the chickens and... <laughs> Yeah, people don't realize I've never been around that many chickens, but their urine species is ripe with ammonia. It, is, oh. it makes your, literally makes your eyes water. It's so strong in those barns. There's 18 to 20,000 chickens in one of those barns. So it's wow. crazy. All right, where'd that one go? We've got an ear pod that shot across the room. <laughs> it's because how much you're, pressure are these <laughs> things under? <laughs> it's cause you <laughs> All right, let me find my ear pod one real quick. <laughs> there it is. I got it.
3: All right. So you've you've now served with the hundred and first airborne and mm-hmm. got out. Did you ever prior to that have a desire to serve your country?
4: I was one of those kids with my cousins and my buddies, we ran around with sticks shooting out each other, belly crawling through the grass and <laughs> all of that. Uh, my dad was a Navy man back in the Bay of Pigs era. He was a CB in the Navy. My oh, uncle wow. was on, on the Kitty Hawk and Mom. My great grandfather, Arthur Griggs, drove for General MacArthur in World War II. Wow. So definitely had some history there that I was aware of, but wasn't something I ever set out to do. I literally was scrambling to find a way to support a new family and this was one of those light bulb moments. Oh, that'll work. I can do that. And what I didn't want to do is go live in our parents' house and see how that went. I was way too independent to want to do that or to think that was going to work. So The Army solved that problem. I honestly never did see a Navy or Marine recruiter. The only recruiter in Pullman, Washington that I saw was an Army recruiter. So that was the one I walked into and took the test and obviously things worked out huge decision for me. I went to the 88 trials that summer, was an alternate on the team, literally one or two matches away from making the Olympic team. And I was wrestling at a level that I'd never expected to be at. I think during that time in the army, I believed, I learned and developed the confidence that I could compete at that level. And I don't think that was there before that. And now they want me to go to a whole new level. And I'm like, holy shit, Talk about a butt pucker. Yeah. Uh yeah, I was, you know, I was like, man, and and now how am I gonna support my two kids and my wife? And what if this doesn't work? You know, I was a pretty good student. I didn't apply myself. I literally got A's and B's without trying. So it wasn't like I was a dummy, but it was still six years since I'd been in that kind of mode in that environment as a student at a college, a division one college. And it was definitely a scary decision for me. Driving out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. For Stillwater, Oklahoma, the car packed and loaded with the kids and everything, and I pull into town. And first person we met, we're staying at a hotel till we could find an, an apartment. And everybody was just so dang friendly, so amazing in that. You know, I was like, <laughs> man, I am definitely in the right place. So it was a lot different than the way you get treated around a military base and living just off the base. And it seems weird how much finance and you know how much money we bring into those communities, but those communities a lot of times aren't very friendly or kind to us uh, around the bases i don't think a lot of folks know that but that's just how it is and so yeah i you know i was almost immediately elated that here we were and it was it looked like everything was positive there were all positive signs that this was going to be a good decision and things were going to work out transition as you know jake is a real challenge for a lot of yeah. folks and walking away from that piece of who i was for six years i wore that uniform that was a huge part of my identity and who i was Thankfully, that college scholarship was my built-in purpose. I had no time to think about what the hell am I going to do now and who the hell am I?
2: Gift from yeah. God, right there, bro. Absolutely, you know, and you know that. You know that.
4: No doubt, I was so blessed and fortunate that my purpose was already built in. I'm going to go get my college degree, and I'm going to win a national championship in in, in collegiate wrestling, and you know, and set about doing that. And then, again, awesome experience. And I think being a cowboy, wrestling for the Cowboys at Oklahoma State, I developed that confidence that I could not just compete at that level, but I could win. I could win at that level.
3: You know, we talk about it all the time on this show. Coaches. I mean, it's crazy. Just make such a huge impact on our lives. Myself and Jake included with Texas high school football and cheer and dance. Like, it seems like almost everyone we've talked to, there's been a coach. It's, it's just such an important role. I mean,
2: literally, if it wasn't for my coaches and for football, like I wouldn't be alive. They're so influential and make such an mm-hmm. impact. And yeah, like you said, too, I don't think that they realize it. I don't think that they even know because they're just doing what they're passionate about doing. But it yeah, has yeah. so much power and so much longevity and sustainability in one's well being if you implement the lessons taught later on. You know, Jackson is eleven, he's playing football in Texas, it means a religion. His coach is pretty tough. He's no fluff and doesn't put up with any antics. And I said Jackson, in my senior year, I was voted captain of my team. And I had this kind of love-hate relationship with my head coach. I was never really receptive to authority. I wanted to question everything.
3: Unlike you, Jake always fought.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like, it was way different. I did get caught, like, every time. (laughs) I wasn't good at not getting caught. And I told Jackson, I was like, look, bud, here's the deal. You never know what the reason is behind anything they're doing, but I promise you there's a reason. And I said, Jack, one of the coolest things I ever experienced that had nothing to do with being on a football field was the day during our award ceremony in the Marine Corps after the guys got home and the day that I got my Purple Heart damn near fainted because I had this major infection inside my body. I told you about this years ago. I ended up having to fly back to San Antonio the next morning for emergency surgery, but I looked up. And it was my head coach from my senior year and his wife and kids. And I was taken aback by it. You know, like, what are you doing here? And he just said, I just wanted to come tell you that I love you, I appreciate you, I respect you. And one of my kids, to shake your hand, give a face to a name when I talk about you. And I told Uh, Jackson, I said, man, as a young, dumb teenager, I never knew that I was making an impression. I knew a negative one because when I'd end up in his office, you know, like I think about... My coaches, I think about uh, especially guys in the Marine Corps that not even, even in leadership, but just in my platoon that just made such an impact. And it's just so cool to be able to have these experiences that we never would have gotten had we not done something that scared us, you know, that we were mm-hmm. a little nervous about. And that's what we're trying to get the boys to understand is, hey, do what scares you. Get uncomfortable. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's where Mm -hmm. you're going to grow.
4: I think you have to be willing to fail. You got to be willing to embrace the potential that you're going to fail. You're not going to be successful and still be willing to put yourself out there and recognize that that failure, if it does come, is going to be your opportunity to learn, to get better, to become a better athlete or whatever it is you're applying yourself to. And at the end of the day, a better human. So that fear of failure is the thing that locks up a lot of guys. I know a lot of amazing fighters in the training environment, in the practice environment. And then it comes time to walk on fight night, those four steps up into that cage and they lock up. That fear of failing, that vulnerability, the potential exposure in there is more than some people can handle. That's a mental skill you have to practice and learn to deal with and face that adversity.
3: And something also that I've found, you know, even in my life as a huge motivator is that desire to please. So the fear of failing, but then also the desire to please. You mentioned your father. Did you draw from that when you took the mat?
4: I think we all want to be loved and accepted. It's part of how we're wired as humans, for sure. And sometimes we're willing to go to great lengths to see that happens. We have to all learn that that little voice in our head is, it should be our friend. I call him my crazy roommate, say shit. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind would say <laughs> to my face and uh, and learning that I control that voice. That voice does not control me is a huge step in, in my journey and that didn't happen until I was well into my 30s before I figured that out. Working with a sports psychologist on the national teams and all that stuff and trying to develop some of these mental skills to deal with the adversity of competition of walking out into the center of that map by myself was a huge thing for me. And I wish I'd have figured that out a long time ago. I may have avoided a couple of divorces, who knows? (laughs) But uh, recognizing that we control that voice, that voice does not control us. We can step behind that voice anytime we want and let it batter on. You don't have to react. You don't have to even engage. It's gonna say what it's gonna say, but you can also stop it and give it affirmative, positive things to say and now you become a force to be reckoned with because your conscious voice that thing that rolls off your tongue so easily and your subconscious voice are saying the same thing you're going to be tougher than hell to deal with when that's the case so recognizing that you have to spend some time there to develop like any physical skill we have to spend some time working on those mental skills to develop that acuity and sensitivity and learning when that voice is chirping and going off and saying things that are undermining your confidence and your actual abilities that are God-given and recognizing when to shut him up and give him the positive things to say and focus on those. I had to write those things down in the beginning on three by five cards and put them in my gym bag and put them in my locker and put them on my speedometer in my car. So when I'm driving to practice, those things are going there. And especially when the pressure gets turned up, that's when that voice seems to really start chattering and going nuts. You know, The week of the fight, If I listen to that voice, I'm going to be out in the parking lot running sprints because the what ifs come in, right? Instead of letting my body recover and having faith and confidence in the plan and all the work that I just put in, to even get to fight week to be able to walk into that cage on Saturday night. And the thing I didn't recognize was that all those skills apply to my everyday life, to all the other things I do in my life, to having a conversation that's difficult with my wife or my kids or my boss. I can visualize those things and see the outcome that I want, and imagine it, seeing it in my head going a bunch of different ways with that one common denominator: success. Right. I always saw the hand get raised at the end of those fights. No matter what happened in that visualization, I always was successful. I was always victorious, and the same thing I can visualize just about anything. And and I think you start to have a physical reaction to those pictures that you start putting in your head. So controlling those pictures and making them positive and affirmative things is a hugely powerful thing.
3: That's the soul food right there. The mindset, it's so important. Was there a period of time in all of this that you had self-doubt?
4: There was two of those and both of those had divorce Mm. in front of them. My mother was married and divorced twice and married a third time to my stepdad, Marco, that was the biggest sense of failure that I had ever experienced in my life. And Uh I literally considered driving my 10 speed bike in oncoming traffic and just being done. Uh, That's the truth of the matter.
2: You had to fight suicidal ideation at one point.
4: It certainly crossed my mind. Anybody that says those kind of thoughts never crossed their mind is lying their ass off.
2: I completely agree with you. A hundred percent agree with you.
4: We all have things that happen in our lives that put us in that dark place, in that you know, where you start questioning your value and and what you're able to handle. And I never actually tried to go through with any of that. I've been in that dark place twice in my life, and I don't even want to talk about the other time. It just wasn't, yeah, it was it was bad. But I got through it. I got through with the help of friends. Some people know me well enough to call me and make jokes and lighten the mood and put it in a different perspective. It's all about framing something, right? If we allow the frame that certainly our crazy roommate, our subconscious mind wants to put around <laughs> shit, you're probably going to end up in some dark places. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and if you recognize that you shut that off and you give it the positive, affirmative things to say, and you probably end up in a lot less dark places. I've been very, very fortunate. I've never been a person that struggled with anxiety or depression. or And I know there are a lot of folks out there that do. I think it's important that we address and talk about some of this stuff. Doesn't matter how painful it is. I think it has to be addressed and we have to shine a light on that stuff or or the numbers are going to keep going the way they're going yeah. and they're not good. Yeah, that was one of the darkest times that first divorce and recognizing the situation I'd gotten myself into, how unhappy I was and I wasn't being the man I wanted to be or living the life I wanted to live. Thankfully got through it, definitely sought out some counseling and I've been divorced three times. Doesn't take a brick <laughs> in the head. <laughs> Maybe it does. <laughs>
3: <laughs> looking back now, though, it's kind of hard to have gratitude for the hard times that we went through. But looking back now, do you feel like those times shaped who you are today?
4: Absolutely. And that's certainly something I've learned through athletics, through wrestling and fighting. Those setbacks, those losses, everybody raves about six world championships. That means I lost it at least five times. And the truth <laughs> is, I lost at all six. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always about winning. It's about how you deal with the adversity of life, the adversity of losing. In life and in athletics, you're going to get knocked on your ass. There's yep. no way around it. Everybody does. And if you think you're going to skate past that, you're you're sorely mistaken. So yep. you better figure out how to embrace it, make the most of it, recognize it for what it is. It's a chance for you to learn, to make the adjustments you need to come back and be a better athlete and at the end of the day, I think a better human. So I embraced that. The volatile sport of wrestling and losing in some of the biggest matches you can literally be in, make the Olympic team, to be NCAA champion, I I lost in the finals twice. I think those losses and setbacks and dealing with that adversity and the kind of darkness and negativity that comes in after you lose something that big, something you worked that hard for, definitely made me the person that I am. To be able to deal with the divorces and to deal with all the other stuff that life has thrown, I, I had tools because I dealt with those adversities On the mat, me in the cage, they gave me resilience. They gave me a mindset to be able to deal with any of the other crap that came my way.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products.
3: You've got such an impressive resume and so many accolades to your name, but tell us about Extreme Couture GI Foundation.
4: Extreme Couture GI Foundation was something that I founded in 2008. In 06, I got to go to Iraq. I spent 12 days on the ground with a bunch of our soldiers there. And obviously it was a moving experience for me, having taken that oath at 19 and never had to put my ass on the line. And now I'm hanging out with a bunch of guys and gals, and I'm literally doing exactly what I trained to do and never had to do. So it was it was a... I would say a good experience, but 129 degrees in the Iraqi heat. Where- I don't know what
2: you're talking about,
4: Randy. Tell me more <laughs> yeah, about that. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh I enjoyed what we were doing and why we were doing it over there, but it wasn't fun. It, it was a challenge for sure. And it gave me a new perspective on what it would be like had I been that guy at nineteen years old walking onto that combat zone. So uh it was an eye opener for sure for me. The next year in 07, a friend of mine uh, Mike Davis set up a barbecue at the Fisher House in Walter Reed Bethesda mm-hmm. in DC. Me, Ken Shamrock and Don Fry all came out and wow. then we got to walk the wards and meet a bunch of men and women fresh off the battlefield that had been wounded. That experience was a game changer. Hearing the horror stories, hearing, you know, oh, my dad came down here for the last six months to be my caregiver. He's staying in the Fisher House. Now he's lost his job. My mom's been here for a year and a half while I'm going through these surgeries. Yeah. We've lost our house, the house I grew up in. My wife's car has been in the parking garage for 18 months now. And it's got a boot on it. We can't afford the $1,500 yeah. it's going to take to get that thing out of Hawk. I, I was beside myself. I knew at that moment there was something we could do to alleviate this transition for these folks that have already sacrificed what they've sacrificed. So we filed for 501c3 status. Yeah, I'm starting to get emotional. That's know I am okay. too. Right. <laughs> i
2: sorry. Get right. emotional every time. Everybody,
4: it's okay. Yeah. So we're off and running. One of our very first events with the Extreme Couture GI Foundation was a motorcycle poker run. Obviously, there's an affinity between veterans and motorcycles that started after World War II and, and kind of drove a lot of the biker clubs or call them whatever else you want to call them. But <laughs> a lot of those guys were vets after World War II that ended up in those places and doing those things so the motorcycle poker run immediately became one of our most successful events and we've done a lot of different events over the years in a lot of different states we've got program coordinator Patrick Crosby up in Seattle we're doing some events up there we've had friends in St Louis Dave Markatani yeah, friends down in Georgia and Tony Demos Postlic up in Quad cities we just had a ride in Cocoa Beach Florida with Dave Mancuso these are all friends of mine they don't get paid. Yeah, they're doing these things because they see what I'm trying to do and they want to be part of that they want to help those guys actually serve that's what means a lot to me is that these are actual civilians Americans that see what's going on and want to be part of this and want to help and want to raise the awareness and raise some of that money every year we go out to Walter Reed and Bethesda Linda Resnick helps us identify families that need the most financial help at that time in that transition. And we sit down with each one of those families. Last year, I had to sit down with 16 families and give 16 $10,000 checks. That's a good kick in the butt for most people and take wow. that financial pressure off them while they're in that situation. We've expanded our mission a little bit. We now have a big database through all of our events and through MDP, Emerging Vets and Players, which were the Nevada chapter for that. A lot of these vets get buried in bills and they're up to their eyeballs in debt. So they provide us that paperwork, uh, show us those bills. We'll pay those bills off and get them flush. So they don't have that stress in their life anymore. We recognize that not all wounds are on the outside. Some of these guys, the peer-on-peer counseling of MVP and all that's great, but some of them need a little higher, more professional care. So we've connected a lot of our veterans that we recognize need some more serious counseling. They let those demons out into the light of the day. They don't like that. They hate that, actually, and give them some professional tools to deal with that TBI or that PTSD and the darkness that, that a lot of us carry around because of our training, because we're not willing to let that stuff out, and we're trained not to. We're trained to stay on task and accomplish the mission, not to ask for help, not to cry for vulnerability or any of that stuff. So changing that narrative, changing that mindset, making making that okay to say, hey, man, I'm struggling. This shit is really on me and I, I'm really having a hard time. We have to be able to change that narrative. Two years ago, I spoke to all the sergeant majors in the European theater about just this and changing the narrative. And if we don't get it from a thought, so it trickles down to everybody else. And Strap Plessis, who's a, just retired. He was a sergeant major in the army. He stood up and he told his story about having his gun in his mouth and said, I just got back from counseling and trying to sort that out. And I don't want to ever be in that place again. But to have a sergeant major stand up in front of all those other sergeant majors and tell that story, balls the size of church bells and good for him. That stigma that's attached to asking for help It's got to change in our services or we're going to continue to see the numbers that we're seeing. It's that simple.
2: No doubt about it.
3: Truly from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. And thank you for spending the time and the energy and the effort and the talent and the treasure on this. Because, you know, we we live, eat, breathe it every day in the work that we do with veterans, first responders, law enforcement officers. And we're just we're truly grateful that your voice is out there doing this.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, look, you're leading from the front as usual. And. Just like Tony, who I got to spend some time with Tony from Jordan. Love that, dude. And some of those people you mentioned that never served a day in their life are prime examples of being able to serve now without wearing the uniform. It's possible. Yeah. You don't have to wear a uniform to serve your nation.
3: I have to know. Like, here's my burning question. It has nothing to do with fighting or UFC. Well, I mean, it kind of does.
4: Well, yeah. I, I I'm a
3: die-hard, Impractical Jokers fan.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that <laughs> <Not> was <much> fun
3: <laughs> Pants- with the stars.
4: Dude, that
2: that was because we do watch it religiously.
3: I literally laugh out loud every time I'm watching it. Whether yeah, I've yeah. seen the episode 10 times or 20 times, I love those guys. That whole concept of that show is just yeah. hilarious. To and me. there's
2: been a couple times where like, I'm like, Are you sure you're not the one with the TBI? Because
3: like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing not- so hard. <laughs> uh, but
2: what was great. it they're like? Great guys. What was it like? Yeah,
4: great guys that are legit. They've literally been friends forever, and I think that's what comes out in the show yeah. is that they just have a blast taking the piss out of each other frankly yeah. <laughs> and uh that's so, what and, life's and all it was about. just a lot of fun so great i'm probing today i mean that that episode yeah. was so funny <laughs> to me and sal was was great and obviously very gracious and it, it was just a lot of fun absolutely. i got it i i got a little tearing <laughs> way on so they, you Oh they're you got a little earpiece in they're kind of giving you some hints and telling you what's going on and what they want you to do and I kind of took it one step further I just pulled my pants off and Dude. threw them so out I, I, <laughs> I was
2: just about to ask okay when you did that was it a planned thing or was that spur of the no. moment like I'm just well, going to take that my, my pants me. off and
4: give them to him. that was just me getting <laughs> into it for <versus> sure <laughs> At it least i more appropriate underwear.
3: Exactly, you <laughs> <laughs> like your mama taught you. Always make sure you got clean underwear on. Yeah, oh, that rule
4: before, That's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking
3: back over your journey, is there a person or an individual foundation that's made a huge impact on your life?
4: Yeah, my mom. Yeah, she she raised three of us by herself. Single parent, set example, taught us the work ethic. I was the oldest of three, the two two younger sisters, the chore list was there. That better be done by the time mom got home. So there was some delegating going on and getting (laughs) some stuff done. And yeah, my mom absolutely set that example and that bar for me my entire life.
3: Sounds like we had very similar mothers.
4: Yeah. She's
3: she's my hero
4: too.
2: Very much so. My heroine. (laughs) What do you do to recharge Randy Couture's batteries and just calm the soul?
4: Well, you used to be going in the cage and get punched in the face. But <laughs> most, of the, most of the demons scatter for the shadows yeah. and where that's going on. But no, the, the gym actually was a huge refuge for me because the rest of the world goes away. You can't worry about that argument you had with your wife or the bills or anything when you got somebody standing across the mat that wants to kick you and, or punch you in the face. So yeah. Ride that motorcycle is the other place where it's very relaxing for me. You're in the moment, you got to be right there. You're not going to be wandering off and end up at the gym when you were going somewhere else, riding a motorcycle, it just doesn't happen. So, And then the third place for me is being out in the woods, mm-hmm. hunting, fishing, mostly hunting. I love to fish too. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest around right the Puget Sound. We hunted, fished, crabbed. I love being in the outdoors, getting barefoot, walking around in the mud and the dirt and getting reconnected to mother earth. That's my happy place again, for sure. And it's what that small ranch outside of Flagstaff does for me. It gives me that place to unplug Put the phone and the iPad in the Faraday bag and, and call yeah. it a week or or sometimes a month if you can get away with it.
2: That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's right, peace. That's right beautiful. Right there with you too, man. That wind therapy goes a long way. And you know? and hunting yeah. and
3: fishing and being in the great outdoors. Yeah, being out
2: in God's country yeah. where you, your electronics don't even work, being able to unplug is so important.
4: Yeah, we get so used to having everything right at our fingertips and not having to struggle for anything from the running water and the toilet to the food that we have access to all the time. And yep. you take yourself out in the nature, out in the world, and you realize just how insignificant we are.
2: Yeah,
3: exactly. Fact. Last question. What feeds your soul?
4: Oh, I think certainly what feeds my soul now is is uh, all the people I get to touch. You know, everybody talks about, you know, oh my God, I can't imagine doing a four hour appearance with all those people all over you. And it's, yeah, but I got to meet so many cool people. For me, it's all about humility. I start with humility. I act with humility. Yep. I end with humility. With that mindset, with humility, every single person I meet is better at something than I am. And with an open heart and an open mind, I have an opportunity to learn what that is and learn from that person, starting with humility, acting with humility, and ending with humility every single day.
3: This interview today, this conversation we've had with you truly has fed our soul today, and and we're just so grateful for the man that you are, for all the work that you've done and that you continue to do, and and thank you for being part of the good stuff.
2: I knew from day one, you're a real deal. You're a true homie. I knew it. I felt it. You know, I felt that soul connection, and I was like, I just thank God for a minute. I was like, hey, thanks for putting me around a real dude. You know, and I knew the people that set that up wouldn't put me in an arena to not be around someone like that because, I mean, you know me and I have a hard time keeping what I think in a cage. But I got to tell you, bro, you've made me a better human. Having the privilege and honor to be able to call you brother and friend is something I don't take lightly. And I know that I can call upon you and I think you know too, but I'll say it anytime, anywhere, anything, say the word. I would have zero hesitation bleeding for you, bro.
4: Wow. I appreciate that, brother. Hopefully we'll never come to that.
3: Yeah. Let's hope y'all's bleeding days are behind us.
2: (laughs) Randy, the natural couture. I freaking love you, man.
4: Thanks, brother. That's a two way street, brother. I really appreciate you.
3: So many great one-liners and nuggets. Like I I just really enjoyed that interview and episode.
2: See, he's, he's a hell of a lot more than just a pretty face. (laughs)
3: No, he is so inspirational, so inspirational. You know, I love what he said. Life's going to knock you down. Figure out how to embrace it and make the most of it.
2: This is another guest who's accomplished great things that started in their childhood, and I, I'm awed by him. And, and, it really, and it doesn't have anything to do with his championships and his, and his belts and the Hall of Fame and the acting. It has to do with how driven he was even at a young age, to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish and being true to himself and being convicted in his work ethic. I mean, I'm just—I'm inspired by
3: it. And staying humble the entire time. Humility was such a huge theme, you know, at least through his adulthood and everything he's accomplished, just staying humble and treating everyone like, man, this is someone that I could learn from because he knows that that person is better at something than he is.
2: Yeah, and that's coming from— A world champion Hall of Famer. And if he can do it, we should all be able to do it.
3: Exactly. A world champion Hall of Famer who's exactly like the rest of us. He's got the crazy roommate he talks about controlling that voice. I think that's hilarious. We all have it. We have these fears. We have these insecurities that creep in. But it's about how you get in there and you control it. And you say, I'm not going to let this hinder my success.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the ultimate lessons learned from this amazing interviews always wear appropriate underwear and don't go kicking chickens
3: (laughs) don't go kicking chickens
2: don't go kicking chickens
3: (laughs) exactly thank you so much for listening if this episode touched you today please share it and be part of making someone else's day better
2: put on your badass capes and be great today and remember you can't do epic stuff without epic people thank you for listening to the good stuff
3: The Good Stuff is executive produced by Ashley Schick, Jacob Schick, Leah Pictures, and Q Code Media. Hosted by Ashley Schick and Jacob Schick. Produced by Nick Casolini and Ryan Countshaus. Post production supervisor Will Tindy. Music editing by Will Haywood Smith. Edited by Mike Robinson.